Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome to you all. This is another live edition of Canada's most irreverent talk show. You are tuned into the Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. It is, uh, I have no idea when it is. I was off for a week and I just realized that I have no idea what day it is, what time it is. I think it's four o'clock Eastern. I think it's a Tuesday and my computer is telling me it is April 12th. So I hope you are, uh, (laughs) believe it or not, some people listen to me because they think I have my uh, stuff together. Well, Hopefully I will on the things we discuss in the time we have together today. We're going to be joined later on in the program live by conservative leadership candidate Joseph Borgle, who is a Saskatchewan entrepreneur and business owner. We'll talk about the leadership race with him. And I also want to talk about the never-ending story right now, which is governments wanting to impose more restrictions and more lockdowns, even when you think you're in the clear. This has been the story of the pandemic, is that you're never in the clear, you're never out of the woods, you are never free from the grasp of government that wants to plunge you back into the same fear and panic and paranoia that were ubiquitous and pervasive across the country and the world circa March, April 2020. And to this end, I want to share a clip of Kieran Moore. Now, if you're not in Ontario, this is not your chief medical officer of health. But for Ontarians, this is the guy, the so-called top doctor, which, by the way, was a line that no one had heard of before 2020, which is now like the, it's now a job title in and of itself. You know, Ontario's top doctor, Saskatchewan's top doctor, Canada's top doctor, and, and take from all that what you will. But Kieran Moore says, now, just to set the stage here, Ontario has been mask-free for, I think, less than a month now. Ontario got rid of the vaccine passports, maybe it was six weeks ago. So it hasn't even been two full months that Ontarians have been free of masks and free of vaccine passports, notably because I suspect Ontario's government is heading into re-election mode. That is probably why people get a little taste of freedom, the so-called crumbs of liberty. But we haven't even had two months of freedom yet. And this is what Kieran Moore says in his first briefing. We will not be reinstating a broad mask mandate at this time. We should all be prepared that we may need to res- uh, resume a requirement for mask wearing in indoor public spaces if a new variant of concern emerges, a threat to our health care system, or potentially during the winter months when COVID-19 and other respiratory viruses are likely to c- circulate again. Ooh, did you hear that? It's, well, we're not doing it at this time. We're not doing it right now. Maybe do it later. We're not doing it right now. But the part of that that I want you to focus in on is the part at the end where he says, well, yeah, new variants might bring back the mask mandate, but also the winter months when we're dealing with COVID and other respiratory illnesses. So all of a sudden, the mask mandate will become part of the annual flu season, I fear. And anyone that says, oh, you're being a conspiracy theorist, just cut that. I think at this point we've determined that conspiracy theorists are just people that happen to be right before everyone else is. So uh, the one thing that is going to happen here, inevitably, is that more and more of these things that we warned were conspiracy theories, like the return of vaccine passports, like the return of mask mandates, are things that just become the norm. So it's basically the Alberta situation where you may have recalled Alberta last year was open for summer. Canada Day in Alberta was great. The Calgary Stampede was great. You had no masks. You had no vaccine passports, none of that. And then come the fall, 
Come the fall, all of a sudden, Alberta is plunged into restrictions that had previously been sworn off. So this is what it's looking like is taking place in Ontario, where you get to enjoy your summer, you get to have a mask-free, vaccine passport-free election season, and then once the election's over, all of a sudden the new variant of concern comes out and we're right back into the paranoid mode. Now, the whole point of this, and the reason I focus on Kieran Moore here, because what he's saying is, I think, something that is probably speaking for leaders of other provinces as well. I think this idea that a mask mandate, a return of the mask mandate being around the corner is not limited to Ontario. But also because he's been in the middle of his own miniature conspiracy of sorts, or controversy, I should say. Not a conspiracy. Not yet, anyway. Although, actually, no, I shouldn't say that because people are turning this into a conspiracy. So, Kieran Moore, according to, I think it was City News in Ontario, was away in the Dominican Republic last week. And he was there because, uh, you know, he's been the so-called top doctor. It's stressful. You want to kick back in the Caribbean. That's his uh, MO. He wants to do that. No issues. I'd, I'd rather be in the Dominican right now than in Canada, I assure you. But he comes back. City News reports on the fact that he was in the Caribbean. And I want to read the story for you. The first two lines. Ontario's top doctor, there it is, top doctor. Ontario's top doctor was on a vacation in the Dominican Republic last week. City News has learned, well, there are no travel advisories to prevent Dr. Kieran Moore or anyone else from traveling to the Caribbean. His trip came as the sixth wave gained steam in Ontario and as calls grew for him to address Ontarians about surging COVID-19 case counts. So this is called, I mean, the lead, he went on holiday the second line, there is no restriction in place, no recommendation or advisory in place that should prevent him from going on holiday. But we're in the midst of a sixth wave, the article declared. And yes, Theresa Tam this morning declared that we are in the midst of a sixth wave. Kieran Moore has said we're in the midst of a sixth wave. And people want to keep that over you like the sword of Damocles. They don't want you to feel like everything is normal again. There was a guy, I won't share it because I just have no interest in giving him any airtime, but there was one of these, uh, you know, COVID paranoid, COVID zero loons that was tweeting that Kieran Moore should be strung up on quarantine act charges because he has been back in Canada and isn't masking for 14 days. So they believe that you should be uh, wearing a mask. And, and I actually looked it up and it is technically true. The quarantine act says, even if you're vaccinated and exempt from quarantine, you have to wear a mask in any public spaces for the first 14 days when you've returned home. So they're saying they want him charged with violating the Quarantine Act because he dared to be in public for this COVID briefing, this press conference without wearing a mask. But that's what people are up against. Now, when I shared that clip on Twitter yesterday of Kieran Moore, I had some people saying, well, he's, he's just trying to throw a little bone to the people that don't want COVID to end, that don't want COVID restrictions to end. People that were very optimistic, very trusting, giving the government the benefit of the doubt, saying, no, 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 they're, they're committed to reopening. They just know that some people are uncomfortable with it. So, you know, they want to just tell them that, yeah, they're monitoring it. And, and I'm, at this point, going to say that we should never give the government the benefit of the doubt about anything. Certainly not COVID related, certainly not civil liberties related, but I, I think that, I mean, of all the things that I would say with certainty that we shouldn't give the government the benefit of the doubt is something I think we can own and stand by very much, very significantly. And all of these restrictions here, 
All of these restrictions still exist. And I know I've harped on this point in the past, but it's still very much in, in force right now since I've been back for off for a week and back in that people are trying to claim restrictions don't exist. They're trying to claim that, oh yeah, you can come into the country without quarantining. You can go into a restaurant without a mask. You can go into a restaurant without flashing your vaccine passport. Life is back to normal. First off, it's not back to normal if you are unvaccinated. So the idea of doing what Kieran Moore did, of coming back into the country and not having to quarantine, you can't do that if you're unvaccinated. If you're unvaccinated, you have that restriction in place. If you are American, you can't come into the country unvaccinated. So, so in that way, you're not back to normal at all. You can't board a plane if you are unvaccinated. You can't board a train. You can't go back to work working for the federal government. You can't do all of these things if you're unvaccinated. So life is not back to normal for everyone. And I'm going to keep bringing that up because there are a lot of people that have just been completely satisfied cementing this segregation in place because they either don't see or don't care that life is not back to normal business as usual for a segment of the population who, like them or not, deserve and have rights as humans, as Canadians. So that's a big part of it. And also, it's the, the sort of Damocles analogy I mentioned earlier. When government is dangling over your head the threat of more restrictions, the threat of reimposing things that, from which you are now supposedly free, that ain't freedom. You can say, well, yes, we're free of vaccine passports and mask mandates, but when governments are saying, well, you know, if another variant comes along, we're going to put them back in. You're really not free from them. It's like, oh, you know, you put your left hand in, your left hand out, your left hand in, you shake it all about like, oh, maybe we'll do restrictions, maybe not, maybe we'll, do that's not freedom. That's not life. That's not normalcy. And I, I know that government cannot legislate its away, its ability to legislate. I've heard people say, well, government needs to put in a law saying there are no vaccine passports ever again. The whole point of that is that it doesn't matter because government can just as easily pass the law reversing that. It's unless you bake it into the Constitution or unless you have a right recognized as constitutional, which may happen in the course of, of some of these court challenges. But unless you do that, government has to just basically be told by people, we will not abide by this. Government has to be told by citizens, we will not stand for this. And, and that's a big part of what the trucker convoy protest was about. And there's a reason that a lot of these convoy protesters are still protesting. They're having these uh, family gatherings in towns and cities across Canada. They're doing drive-bys. Uh, they're, they're keeping the spirit of the convoy alive. Because they realize that there is a, a cultural shift that still needs to take place. And, and I want to talk about the importance of this. Justin Trudeau has been giving me just talk radio gold this week. Just completely ignorant to his own track record. I'm going to play two clips. The first one is the one of him. Well, I'm, I'm going to do it in two different ways. First off, I'm going to play the clip of him in Victoria. Because he was in Victoria, B.C., and a bunch of anti-vaccine mandate protesters, I don't know how many of them, but they showed up to tell him, hey, you know, we're not fans of what your government is doing. And a reporter asked him about it, and this is what happened. An expectation that there'll be protesters this afternoon at City Hall. Uh, the mask mandates um, and vaccine mandates are essentially over, and yet there remains this cultural divide, if you'll, you'll call it. How, what would you say to those protesters today? Uh, first of all, 
I don't know if this is a good thing, but I, I can't remember a trip to Victoria City Hall in which there weren't uh, a few people expressing their uh, concerns about, uh, about some issue or other. And it's really important that Canadians continue to be able to come out and express their views, express their disagreement with, uh, with government. Uh, protests should always uh, be legal. They should be legal in a, a uh, safe and, uh, and responsible way. And that's exactly what we're going to continue to encourage. So I'm uh, looking forward to seeing what's on people's minds as I, I uh, go to meet with the mayor and, and, uh, and see people at City Hall. Protests. He encourages people should always be able to say what's on their mind and protesting should always be legal. Okay. Um, I, I feel like he's forgetting something. I'm trying to remember. Was there like a story a couple of months ago? There, there was something that did. Oh yeah. Remember when he invoked the emergencies act to crack down on a peaceful protest that was taking place steps from his office? Remember that? Remember when he had police going in and arresting journalists, arresting protesters, using a wartime law, the Emergencies Act, the Update of the War Measures Act, to stop peaceful protest? And before you say, I mean, I've had people that have said to me on Twitter, well, it wasn't peaceful. They were honking horns. It wasn't peaceful. They were blocking streets. I'm like, well, First off, none of those things are violent, and the horn honking was kind of a red herring because it had by and large stopped. He does not respect the right to protest. He only respects the right to protest when it's not directed at him in any substantive way. He supports the right of Indian farmers to protest. He supports the right of radical environmentalists to protest, even when it's not peaceful. He supports the right of a few dozen people outside Victoria City Hall to protest, but he doesn't support the right to protest when people are genuinely raising alarm bells in a way that's making everyone across the country and across the world notice, like the trucker convoy was doing. He doesn't support that protest. There's a reason that other people still to this day in the United States and Europe remind Trudeau and remind Canadians and remind their own citizens of what happens when these phony freedom lovers, these phony freedom lovers like Justin Trudeau speak up and say, oh yes, we're all about rights, we're all about human rights, human dignity, the right to free speech, the right to free protest. Well, they behave in ways that are antithetical to those values. And, and again, this is how Trudeau pontificates without looking in the mirror. This is another clip of him warning of what he says is the real threat to free society. When Canadians and friends from around the world stand for Ukraine, we are standing for Ukraine, but we are also standing for ourselves, for these values that have been undermined over the past years with the rise of authoritarianism, with attacks on the social cohesion because of excessive populism and over-nationalism. We have an opportunity now as a world to stand for what is right. So now, again, everything is a learning opportunity. Everything is a growth opportunity. It's a lesson for someone else. He can't just stand up to Ukraine because, or standing up for Ukraine. There's a Freudian slip because it's the right thing to do. It has to be this dramatic stand against populism and nationalism. By the way, there's nothing as nationalistic 
There's nothing as nationalistic about, you know, waving flags and making your profile picture a country's flag and slaying, what is it, my Ukrainian's terrible, but like Slava, Ukraine, like that is the epitome of nationalism, of rallying behind a country. So again, it's, there's good nationalism and bad nationalism. If you're standing up for, for uh, Ukraine, that's good nationalism. If you're standing up for Canada and freedom, it's bad nationalism. It's good nationalism when people do it for the reasons Trudeau likes. It's bad nationalism if, you know, Trump supporters stand up for freedom in the United States. Then it's, oh, populism and over-nationalism and all of that. There are degrees of it. There's, you know, under-nationalism, there's national nationalism, there's regular old nationalism, and then there's over-nationalism. And, and any protest, you have to figure out where it, it fits in, in Trudeau's hierarchy of nationalism and, and populism. And I, I would encourage you to look at Candace Malcolm's interview, uh, when was it, last week, I think, with Preston Manning, because they talk about populism. And a lot of people do not, I don't want to get, you know, insanely boring on this, but a lot of people don't understand that, that populism is not a morally negative word. It's not as charged a term as people like to think. Populism is politics for the people. And, and it's not inherently right wing either. I mean, that's the great irony is that you can be a left-wing populist, you can be a right-wing populist, you can be a, a populist that defies branding on the political spectrum because the policies are rooted in the people. And, and Rick Bell in the uh, Calgary Sun had a great column about this uh, just, I think it was a week ago or so, and, and Danielle Smith mentioned it in her newsletter that if you look at the history in Western Canada, and we'll be talking to a, a Saskatchewan would-be politician very shortly. But a lot of the, the populist movements were farmers' movements. They were, in, in many cases, politically on the left. If you go back to the progressives of, I think, like, what, 1920 or 1919 or something like that, the Progressive Party of Alberta, the Progressive Party of Saskatchewan, and then the United Farmers, and, and even the CCF, the uh, not the Canadian Constitution Foundation, but the, uh, what was it, the, the Commonwealth Cooperation Federation, the, the precursor to the NDP. It was a, a populist party. The NDP has been historically a populist party, not as much now. It's more ideological. Bernie Sanders, very much a populist socialist. There's a reason that there was so much overlap between Bernie Sanders supporters and Trump supporters. Because this idea, the left-right divide that we've structured our political discourse around just does not cut it. Solutions for people have to be a lot more complex than, well, it's a left-wing policy, a right-wing policy. And, and the vaccine mandates have been a reshaping of that. A lot of the people who have come out of the woodwork to support the PPC in the last federal election, to support the Freedom Convoy, uh, to some extent people that have supported uh, Pierre Polyev's leadership campaign, these are not people that are traditional conservatives, certainly not capital C conservatives. These are people who are allure, they, they find the idea of freedom alluring in terms that aren't conventionally politically conservative. I mean, there's a story I've told, and I'll, I'll share it again. A woman I met in Edmonton, it would have been September when I was out west, or it might have even been August, but I think it was September, and she was at a, a Maxime Bernier rally. I think she might have had a PPC shirt on or someone there did, and I, I spoke to her, and, and she looked like a, just an old-school hippie. She had like a, a gemstone on her forehead. She told me, she's like, I'm married to a woman. My kids are homeschooled because we teach them about New Earth education, and it's very spiritual, and I'm listening to this, and then she, she's talking about why she's voting PPC. And I said, have you ever voted conservative in your life? And she laughed. She said, never, never in a million years. Because she's not a conservative. 
But the media would have looked at her and said, oh, you're far right, because she's voting for the PPC. And the media had decided to call the PPC far right, just like they're deciding to call Pierre Polyev's campaign far right. And this is something that we need to see a great discussion of in Canada. I, I wasn't going to talk about it in, in too much detail today, but over the weekend, Jean Charest's campaign, and we had uh, Jean Charest on the show. He's been uh, very good to this program. He appeared very early on in his campaign, and he said that Pierre Polyev's support for the truckers' convoy disqualifies him from being a party leader. And it wasn't just a, a slip of the tongue. It was something that he owned and he put out clips on and put out statements on and he's continued to post on social media. Jean Charest's position is that if you are for the trucker convoy, you do not support the rule of law and therefore you don't get to be the chief lawmaker in Canada. That's basically his view. And, and listen, I, I don't know if it's going to work. Is it strategy? Is it what he believes? Is it a bit of both? It's clearly deliberate. It's clearly a position that he's prepared to own. So Jean Charest is trying to be the anti-convoy conservative in a time which all of the other candidates, well, maybe not all, but most of the other candidates were very convoy sympathetic. I mean, I, I last interviewed, uh, with the exception of my interview with her on the show a couple of weeks ago, I last interviewed Leslie Lewis when I literally just saw her walking the streets of Ottawa during the convoy. Pierre Polyev was out there, I think, giving coffee to truckers. Roman Babber, I don't know if he was ever there, but he's certainly been speaking out on the same message of them criticizing vaccine mandates and vaccine passports. So all of this is to say that right now, the Conservative Party is desperately trying to figure out which space of Canadian society it's going to occupy. And remember, Aaron O'Toole did not do this particularly well. He was not giving an answer. He was unable to give a clear answer early on of whether he supported the truckers or not. And this was very important because clearly in his caucus, there was an understanding that we cannot be on the sidelines as this uprising, this movement takes hold. Because they understood, either because they genuinely believed it or just saw that the conservative base was, was a key part of this, they understood they couldn't be at the side of the road while the truckers were going by. And this was why Aaron O'Toole was outflanked by members of his own caucus. I think it was Martin Shields who was the first one. He did this video at the uh, Centennial Flame on Parliament Hill, and he said, I'm here, truckers, come and get me. We're here, we're, we're ready to greet you. And then it was just a, a cascading effect, and, and Aaron O'Toole uh, just didn't have the ability to resonate with this thing that was taking place. And I know when, when you see Jean Charest take aim at the convoy, you just know that this is going to become the, the chief attack that a lot of the people on the left are going to try to throw at the conservatives. Maybe not in 2025. Admittedly, maybe this won't be top of mind in the next, uh, for, or in three years or two years or whenever the, uh, the campaign starts. But I, I do know that this is something that the left now sees as a liability. They see what Jean Charest was saying. Support for the convoy is disqualifying of being a leader. And I don't know if that's going to cut it. And, and I, I've always been very distrustful of polls that have been done on this because I, I find that polling very much lacks the nuance. Polling lacks the nuance that is so necessary when you're talking about these things. And, and again, like a lot of the polling are, you know, do you think the truckers are being disruptive to life in Ottawa or something like that? It's like, well, yeah, when you frame things in certain ways like that, you're going to get a skewed result. And it's why there were, I mean, there were polls, I, I should have pulled them for the discussion today, but sometimes I just go in directions that I don't know I'm going to go. But one of the things that was fascinating is that 
there were polls that were saying, I think two thirds of Canadians support the truckers. And then there were polls that said, you know, two thirds of Canadians oppose the truckers. And it's like, well, how can you look at, I mean, are, are the samples just that wildly different? Do you have the same questions that are being asked and it's just being asked to different people? Or is it that you're just not capturing into the sentiment? You're not adequately capturing people. And, and this is, I, I think, the huge section of this discussion that's missing is that you have these political elites, you have these people in the media that are just unwilling to talk to the people in a way that they are understood. And, and when I was going out and interviewing people at the trucker convoy protest, you wouldn't believe how many people were so nervous because, you know, I go up and I had a cameraman and I had a microphone and some people knew who I was because they watched True North, other people didn't. That's fine. I was going there to say to people, why are you here? And, and their immediate fear is that they're about to be attacked. Because that was the perception. That was the perception that people have when they see a reporter. That, oh, this is someone who just is not interested in my story. And, and I do not support what we saw of people harassing and heckling reporters. It made them look bad. It's not kind to do. The way you make your point is by selling your point, not by berating others. And all it means is that, you know, people like Evan Solomon and David Aiken and Sean O'Shea, they just have all of these footage, all of this footage of people yelling at them, which makes the convoy look bad. So I, I thought that was wrong. But I understood with all the media coverage we saw, all the dishonest coverage about the convoy, why people were so distrustful of the media. Because you have these people that genuinely, genuinely do not get it. I, I, there's a, a story I tell when I do public speaking sometimes, depending on the topic. Book me for your event, by the way. And uh, it's Selena Zito is the name of the reporter who was a, a lecturer at Harvard a couple of years ago. I don't know if she still is. And she was also a, a journalist and columnist with the New York Post. And, and she took all of these students in her class to a town in Massachusetts. It was like an hour from Harvard. I forget the name of the town, but a small town. And they spent a weekend there. It was called the Main Street Project. And they spoke to the you know, people at the gun range. They spoke to the people that own the restaurant, the people that go to the local church. And afterwards, they all come back and break down. And everyone says, oh yeah, I loved it. They were all so nice. They were all so friendly. I love their way of life. Oh, grandma's pie was great. I'd never shot a gun. That was interesting. And then the teacher tells them, okay, well, that town, you know, 90% of them or whatever voted for Trump. And all of these urban coastal liberals who are studying journalism, studying politics, they've never in their lives knowingly talked to a Trump supporter. And they, they not only did, but, but enjoyed talking to them. They had a good time with them. They, they, they found them to be human. And, and there's a significant part of this that we need to see. Sometimes it's coming from a place of ignorance. Sometimes it's coming from a place of ignorance where what happens is you just, again, have grown up in a little urban bubble where you have no idea that there's this other world that exists. And other times it's coming from a place of malice. Just on the firearms thing, I, I've obviously as a gun owner have tried to be an ambassador for gun owners to other people that have never encountered it. And, and there are people that know a heck of a lot more about guns than I do that have made a point of this as well. I, I did my firearm safety program, which you need to get your gun license through a, an initiative of the Canadian Shooting Sports Association, where what they do is they bring journalists out and for free, they, they teach them firearm safety. 
And it's great. And I, I thought that more and more journalists needed to do this. So uh, there was a time when someone I knew was going to do the same thing. And I reached out to a bunch of lefty journalists that I knew and said, hey, you know, do you want to come out to the gun range for a day and, you know, handle guns? And, and a couple of people were like, yeah, that sounds like a lot of fun. I think it would be good to, to do that. And there was one person who said, nope, I, I don't like guns. I don't want to like guns. I don't want to touch them. I don't want anything to do with guns. I don't want anything to do with guns. That was basically his position. And he's, of course, the most anti-gun of the bunch. And he's the one most prone to making factual errors about guns in his reporting. And I'm not going to say where this took place. I'm not going to say which outlet. But the reason I share that story is so you know that there are some people that have just never had the opportunity to be exposed to a way of life or a type of person. And there are others that deliberately want to close themselves off to this. And there were reporters that were doing great work at the convoy, that were going out actually talking to people, actually trying to understand them. I mean, some of the most tremendous work to come out of the convoy was Rupa Subramania's reporting. Rupa was a, well, is a National Post columnist, but she also is uh, someone who wrote for Barry Weiss's Substack. And what Rupa did was go out there and just talk to the people. She just spoke to the people. It was so simple. And it was at the same time so subversive as a result because you had these people whose stories simply weren't being told. And that's why I've always enjoyed the platform that we have at True North, telling people whose stories are often not told by the mainstream media. And we'll certainly have more of that as the week goes on. I'm going to be doing a, an, an in-focus look at, uh, well, I hope it's in-focus. It's going to be in-depth anyway on uh, Western alienation and, and the brewing fight over Jason Kenney's leadership. That's going to be coming up later in the week. But we are continuing to cover the conservative leadership race as well. And in that, I want to talk to one of the candidates who's not gotten a lot of coverage at all. And uh, in our invitations, we had said, you know, once you submit your paperwork to be a candidate, we'll have you on the show to talk about why it is that you're running. And I, it's my privilege to have on Joseph Borgel, who is an entrepreneur from Saskatchewan, who joins us now. Joseph Borgel, good to talk to you, sir. Thanks very much for coming on today. Uh, you're welcome, Andrew. Good to meet you. Likewise. So you've not held elected office, as I understand, correct? No. Why are you running to be the next prime minister? Uh, because the country is uh, headed in the wrong direction and has been for a long time now. And uh, I feel that uh, I have the strength of moral character, the vision, the uh, competency skills, the executive leadership skills uh, to be able to get the country back on the right track again. We often hear this idea, and I ask all the candidates this, that we have a, a big tent conservative party of Canada in this country that has in it the social conservatives, the libertarians, the populists, the foreign policy conservatives, the red Tories, the blue Tories. Where do you put yourself in that so-called tent? What's your brand of conservatism that you'd bring as leader of the CPC? Well, I, I describe myself as a honest, uh, truth-seeking, principled, uh, fiscal and social conservative. That's how I would describe myself. Uh, wherever the truth goes, that's where I go. Uh, you know, so uh, I think uh, and and truth is above left, right, center. You know, planes fly with a left wing and a right wing, and a fuselage, and so that's how truth is. You know, the principles of flight, 
uh, matter. And, you know, to, for a plane to try to just fly with a right wing, I think it's going to be in a lot of trouble. So one of the things I noticed, and, and we've been talking about the, the convoy effect in Canadian politics here, you've been very clear. I think you were uh, in Ottawa for the convoy for part of it, if memory serves. And you, you've said, you know, no to vaccine mandates, no to digital ID. You're, you're certainly speaking to a lot of these issues that have come up. Why is it you feel that they are not being adequately represented by other candidates or in Canadian politics in general? Well, I've always learned, you know, don't uh, look at what, a, don't, uh, look at what a person says, look, look at what they do. Uh, when we were in Ottawa, we were trying to get a hold of, we had prepared a PowerPoint presentation uh, for the government, for the Liberal, NDP, or Conservative politicians, anybody that would want to see what the, the kind of the demands of the truckers were, and it was all had to do around ending the mandates and the logic why, the science why, we were in touch with all, attempted to contact all those politicians, including Pierre Polyev, uh, and none of them returned our calls or got back to us. So, you know, uh, actions uh, speak louder than words. You can talk about freedom and just keep repeating the word freedom. But if you don't know how you're going to give Canadians their freedom back, and if you've done nothing in your past to stand up for Canadians' freedoms, I just have a little bit of trouble with uh, understanding how Canadians would support people who talk the talk but don't walk the talk, and I walk the talk. Now, you've been a member of the Conservative Party of Canada for quite some time. About how long? 46 years. So, okay, so even the, the PC party originally? Yes. And, and when the split happened, were you a, a Reform Alliance supporter? Uh, yeah, I would. I wanted to see what I wanted to see them come back together around principles. You know, I think unless we govern our country in a principled, in an honest, truthful, and principled way, I cannot see how we will ever get our country back on the right track. And what I see with the current crop of politicians, and I've seen that for years, and I'm learning even that about Stephen Harper. The question is: Are you loyal? Are you there to serve the Canadian people? Or are you there to serve some foreign entities, uh, corporations? So, you know, I, I would be there to serve the Canadian people, not the World Economic Forum or the UN or the World Health Organization. As a matter of fact, I feel all of those organizations are corrupt right now. Now, when you talk about serving, are, are you talking about your belief that Canadian politicians are, you know, ideologically on side with these organizations? Or do you think they're actually beholden to them, that, that these institutions, these groups are, are pulling the strings in a direct way on Canadian leaders? Well, you know, it's like uh, when it comes to some of the members of the Conservative Party, uh, I don't have personally any hard factual evidence that they're affiliated with the World Economic Forum. But I would ask them in a debate, I would ask them, who are you going to, you can't serve two masters. Are you going to be there to 100% committed to serving the Canadian people? Or are you going to be uh, serving the World Economic Forum, the UN agenda, the World Economic Forum? Because the country has really been uh, run over the last two years. What we've dealt with with COVID, the, U, the, World, Economic, uh, the World Health Organization was calling a lot of the shots in terms of, uh, pardon the pun, the shots, uh, in terms of uh, all these mandates that we dealt with. And, 
if you'll ask me some questions about that, I'll answer. We would have never, under my leadership, we would have never shut the country down. Uh, that was uh, outrageous. Uh, there was, you know, I don't even know the words to describe what went on. There has to be a criminal investigation, is to put it simply. I believe there was criminality behind that. Now, I'm not one of these people that cares about other people's vaccination status, so you can disclose or not disclose, that's up to you. But just as a matter of practicality, right now, unvaccinated people cannot board planes. And I know Maxime Bernier has said, the leader of the PPC, that he can't run a national campaign right now as a national party leader because he's not able to, to travel the country in, in the most convenient way. Is that an issue that you think you'll have to contend with? Well, it, it absolutely is. Uh, you know, thank God I love to drive, but uh, I think it's an unfair uh, aspect of it. And uh, I would uh, I would not take an experimental, in, uh, you know, just like I never put guns to my head with bullets in them. I'm not going to take an experimental injection that is known to kill and severely injure people. So why would I do something like that? I'm not going to risk my health or my life uh, to travel the country. I'd rather drive all night than do that. So your belief is that the COVID vaccine is, uh, basically your belief is that people are taking their life into their own hands if they take it. Well, I just follow the science. I'm pro-truth in science. So I've done my research on it. And just off the VAERS system, uh, the VAERS and European system, over 65,000 people died within taking two weeks of taking the injection and millions have been injured. So I, I, these aren't out of my uh, lips. These are the statistical facts. Most of the people that I've spoken to, and I, I don't want to generalize too much here, but they've said their position is, is against mandates, that it should be an individual choice, uh, whether someone gets vaccinated or not, whether someone uh, does any number of, of uh, things that are, are of, of medical uh, suggestion or recommendation or advice to them. But you're taking a view that the vaccine itself is a problem. Well, uh, you know, I respect, like, the view I take is I, I'm all about upholding the rule of law. And I believe that uh, the rights to make medical decisions and all rights are rights giving to, given to us by our creator and not by governments. The Charter of Rights and Freedoms begins, whereas Canada was founded upon principles that recognize the supremacy of God and the rule of law. And all those rights that are in there, those rights were given to us by our creator, not by government. And so government has no right to take those rights away from us. If people believe uh, that they want to take, if they believe the government, uh, that they want to, and they want to uh, take on that experimental gene therapy, I go, go for it. That's, I 100% res respect every Canadian's freedom of choice, but don't try to force me uh, to make a medical decisions against my free will. I consider that violations of the criminal code of Canada and uh, under three sections, you know, extortion, uh, assault and consent. And I think that that's what's happened in, in this country, forcing people to make decisions, medical decisions, experimental medical decisions against their free will. I believe that's criminal. On economics, you've also taken a view that government uh, should not have a carbon tax. I mean, that was one that you, you came right out with here. Uh, but I want to also give you an opportunity to explain, for just from a Western perspective, because I, I know that you are, with the exception of Mark Dalton in, in BC, the only candidate, I think, from Western Canada here. How are you going to speak up for this part of the country? 
Uh, well, like if I were premier, unlike the politicians we have today, I would be governing for all Canadians based on a set of principles, recognizing God as our creator, the relentless pursuit of truth on every issue that we deal with, gathering the facts to discern the truth of the matter. And so as it relates to Western Canada, if there are in fact injustices taking place, and I believe that they are, what the energy sector in primarily based in Western Canada has been under attack ever since Trudeau uh, took office. And so there are some bills there, C69, C48, uh, to me, uh, I'm, uh, I would be, I would, we would take a close look at them and anything that is any legislation that is out of alignment with our core values and principles and out of alignment with the truth and out of alignment, core value and principle is justice and fairness. And I think every region of the country has to be treated justly and fair, fairly, because otherwise we're going to have what we have now, Western alienation. That was created by the, the Trudeau Liberal NDP coalition. And so to me, wherever there's injustice and unfairness and wherever we're out of alignment with the truth in science, or uh, we, we would get rid of that, any of that type of legislation. And I am 100% against the carbon tax because as a business businessman that has been working uh, diligently for 40 plus years to keep jobs in Canada, all the carbon tax is doing is it's making Canadian manufacturers, Canadian companies, Canadian oil and gas sector uncompetitive with the rest of the world. And so what hap what's happening, it's driving the jobs over to China. Uh, China produces over 60% of its electricity with coal-fired power plants that are, are not nearly as regulated uh, to prevent uh, pollution of the natural, in, uh, of the atmosphere. And so what we're doing is all we're doing is actually increasing pollution in China with the carbon taxes that we have here in Canada. It, 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 it doesn't add up. It makes no rational or logical sense, but I wouldn't expect anything different from Justin Trudeau. You mentioned Western alienation, the, the growing Western independence movement, I, I think is something that Justin Trudeau, to his great detriment and to Canada's detriment, has not been paying attention to. You've got the Maverick Party federally, which didn't really achieve all that much in the last election. But I think provincially uh, through the Western um, or through the Wild Rose Independence Party, you see a, a little bit more of this sentiment growing here. Uh, what's your view of, I mean, the Western independence movement and how do you, assuming you do want to keep the Canadian Federation together, how do you tell? Albertans that, no, you can still trust in Canada as a country? Well, obviously, the only way you build trust with people is by telling the truth. And we've had the exact opposite out of, you know, out of Justin Trudeau's lips that, you know, how do you tell he's lying when his lips are moving? You know, there's been so much. And so that's breaking the trust of Canadians, period. Whenever you have politicians that are not telling the truth and not there, not there to serve the Canadian people, uh, of course, you're going to have Western alienation. And so I feel that it, it's on us, those of us who are rational, logic, honest uh, people with integrity, with a moral compass, uh, who have who work off of deductive reasoning and logic. It's up to us to get our message out to Canadians and to convince the majority of Canadians to elect honest uh, truth-seeking, moral, principle politicians, and that—that's what I what I'm standing for, and I think that that's what's required to unify the country. No one 
region of the country should be treated uh, uh, given uh, treated more fairly. But it's beyond that, Andrew, if I may. I believe that Justin Trudeau and the NDP uh, Liberal Coalition, if any of the information we're gathering is true at all, they're there serving the World Economic Forum, the UN agenda, and the World Health Organization. And so right there, you have a major conflict of interest. These politicians are not there to serve the Canadian people. And I, I, unlike them, I would be there to serve the Canadian people. No foreign entity. I'm not a member of the World Economic Forum. I have zero interest in being a member of them. They, they would never control me, uh, nor would the UN or the World Health Organization. We would be making decisions in Canada with our own doctors and scientists and our own professionals uh, doing what's right for the Canadian people, not what's right for some uh, bunch of glo globalists or, you know, uh, uh, or foreign, foreign organizations that are unelected, that are not there to serve the Canadian people. On housekeeping, the uh, Conservative Party of Canada has six official candidates that it's uh, approved to run in the race, and candidates have to uh, put forward, I think, $300,000 plus hundreds of signatures from members. I understand you've submitted your, your initial application, but where are you in the leadership process as a prospective candidate? Well, the, the application went in uh, last week, and so I had no trouble uh, you know, going through the application. Uh, there's nothing in there that would disqualify me. Uh, th the signatures were about 65% of the way, uh, 60 to 65% of the way on the signatures. So I think, you know, I think there's a good chance we're going to get there on the signatures. If there's a bit of a challenge, it's on the fundraising. Uh, we're probably, we may be uh, about 25 to 30, 25% of the way. So to anybody that uh, likes what I'm, you know, the message that I'm speaking, um, you know, I would really appreciate the donations because I'd love to stay in the race. I'd love to be on the, uh, well, I, I'm in it to win it for one thing, uh, but I, to get past the April 29th, uh, Canadians that are hearing my message are going to have to open their wallets and, and uh, donate to my campaign if they want to see me stay on the uh, in the campaign past April 29th. Joseph Borgel, Conservative Leadership Candidate from Saskatchewan. Thanks very much for coming on today, sir. Thank you, Andre, Andre, Andrew, for having me. I appreciate it very much. No, that we should do Andre, actually. I should do a, an entire French version of the show. Thanks very much, sir, for uh, for coming on. Good to speak to you. Uh, and as I've mentioned time and time again, we're going to continue to interview all of the leadership candidates and going to have this and also some announcements uh, in the next little while about how we're going to be covering this race. So uh, my thanks to uh, Joseph for coming on and all of you for tuning in. Let me know what you think about this or anything else. We will make sure to keep you up to date on all that's happening in Canadian politics and beyond and try to be a uh, continued voice standing up for freedom here. But we'll talk to you all soon. Uh, this is the Andrew Lawton Show, Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. Thank you. God bless and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to the Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.